Hi, everybody. Welcome to Millwood and Micah Discovering Avatar. My name is Amanda Millwood, and I'm a screenwriter, actor, director, and a fan of Avatar The Last Airbender. And my name is Todd Micah. I'm the author of Tales from Grimguard, an anthology of dark fantasy, and the Grimguard role-playing game. And I had never watched Avatar until now. We finished up uh, season one of Avatar The Last Airbender, and we somehow got through the movie. And now we are starting uh, season two of Avatar, uh, going over episodes one and two tonight. Uh, so to lead off, we have episode one, The Avatar State. Uh, the episode is written by Elizabeth Ihaj, Aaron Ihaj, Tim Hendrick, and John O'Brien. We have a lot of cooks in the kitchen on this one. Oh, yeah. This, I think this is the first time we've had this many writers in one episode. Like, we've had duos, like, you know, Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konitzko writing the, you know, the first two episodes. But right. I don't think we've had four writers in one episode before. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were talking a little bit before starting the show that um, we saw we were seeing a familiar name here uh, with Elizabeth and the writers uh, because she worked. Uh, she worked and wrote on um, the Northern Air Temple episode, which was uh, written by mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Ihaj and directed by Dave Filoni. Um, so it, okay. it, you, you did mention when we started this podcast that over time I'd be seeing familiar names and, and kind of catching on. <laughs> And I did want to mention also, I, I teased a little bit also before the show talking about this, that I think I figured out who my best, my favorite combination of writers and directors are, especially seeing that this one is directed by, gotta tell you, probably my actual favorite director so far of the Avatar episode, Giancarlo Volpe. Also, since we figured out how to pronounce your name, Giancarlo, like... <laughs> because <laughs> we butchered it like the first episode or two that you were directed <laughs> mm -hmm. i really love i really love his his direction style i think that they're the episodes that he directs are great um and the michael dante DiMartino written episodes are some of my favorites too like um the two of them work together on the waterbending master in season one uh that was really good mm -hmm. uh DiMartino also um he he was credited as the as in the main writing credit for the blue spirit um in winter solstice part two the avatar avatar roku episode um so those ones where he's the helm for the writing and john carlo is directing like they're some of my favorites so oh yeah yeah no they're both great and you're gonna like i said i've been saying this all along you're gonna be seeing a lot of these names over and over again especially in the second and third season so you'll be seeing a lot more of them pairing up for episodes Ooh, I'm excited. So now I kind of have my oh, dynamic yeah. duo. So when I see them, if I if I see them in the in in the credits, I'm just gonna be like, no wonder it was so good. I just <laughs> <laughs> uh, this episode was animated by DR Movie. The episode aired March 17th, 2006, and the IMDb rating of the Avatar State is 8.6 out of 10. Surprisingly high. I was kind of surprised when I saw that rating. <laughs> really? You, did not, you don't think that the uh, the uh, second season here starts off really that that strong of a rating for episode one? Oh, I think it still is a, is a strong start to the season. I just, I don't think it's 8.6 out of 10 strong, but I do think <laughs> it is a very good start. It introduces a lot of stuff, but we'll get into that in a minute. We will, um, <laughs> we will. Take us away with so, some fun facts. Yes. 
All right. So in the original script, they had Azula vaporize the ship captain after he mistakenly refers to Zuko and Iroh as prisoners, thus blowing Azula's cover story. This was changed because the creators deemed it to be too intense for younger viewers. Yeah, she was straight up about to vaporize his ass. (laughs) (laughs) What? I had to to hear that. I had to pull it up and read this with my own eyes. Um... Yeah, yeah, that that would have blown. Uh, that would have blown the cover for sure. <laughs> Worse than before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just since we're on this scene in particular, uh, before we get to the next fun facts, let me just say that this was one of those like defining oh shit moments of my childhood. Like, <laughs> I was so like obviously we knew that Azula was bad, but like oh, yeah. when the guard or not the guard, but the uh, captain blew her cover. And she just glares at him with that death glare, like daggers right into him. I'm just like, oh my God, you are so dead. (laughs) (laughs) It was just such an amazingly set up moment. And I just, I loved it. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Well, she has that like Darth Vader thing. I'll kill my, I'll kill my underlings to show how villainous I am thing, which Zuko doesn't have. Zuko's like every man on the ship is expendable and that's finding the avatar and then he like saves a crew member. Yeah, she is amazing. We love her. Anyway. <laughs> so on to our second fun fact. Daniel Day Kim, who voices Gen- Blech, General Fong in this episode, will also be playing Fire Lord Ozai in the Netflix live action adaptation of Avatar, which is awesome because Daniel Day Kim is daddy and I love him. <laughs> <laughs> so handsome so talented so perfect for like the world of avatar like he's so fit and like so just he's such a great actor he's been so much great stuff like lost and yeah the fact that he was already in avatar as general fong he's now going to be playing fire lord ozai in the live action I was going to say this is this is some this is some avatar section right here this is somebody who played a role in the avatar series coming back almost 20 years later to play a different character in an avatar series. Right. Play the big baddie in the avatar series. It's crazy. Um, and then our third fun fact is in the Japanese Edao period, samurais would cut off their top knot as a way of stepping down from their position, signaling the end of an era of their life. So that's in reference to the ending of this episode with, um, you know, Zuko and Iroh cutting off their top knots. Oh, it's so sad. <laughs> It really is. Hugely emotional scene. Yeah. Um, And then our fourth and final fact is Sifu Kisu, who we've mentioned before, he's the choreographer for Avatar. He created the the idea of bending, um, revealed in an interview with Insider that the reference footage for the fight between Zuko and Azula was filmed outside the Nickelodeon studio next to the statue of Spongebob, which was in the video I sent you. um, Yes. There is a video. Yeah, um, and it shows the kind of reference footage that they get, and then the you know the animatics for it, and they show that very fight that he's that he mentioned in the interview, and I'm like, ah, I've seen this fight. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I forgot about that. That's so cool. Yeah. So funny. Yeah, um, Sifu Kisu. That Sifu Kisu is so cool. I'm friends with him on Facebook, and he is just the coolest. Um, so. Let's talk about the episode. This is the first time that you've seen it. So I'm curious, like you said that you really like the direction that they're taking with this season. Like when you gave me your little mini rundown when you finished the two episodes. So like, tell me about it. <laughs> I, um, 
I really the the first the first season compared to the second season, I feel like even just the the just the first episode alone is the tone is just completely different. Um, the characters in the second season have so much more emotional intensity to them, and it's it's very sophisticated um for an animated series it's one of these one of these reminders that you know avatar the last airbender is no you know saturday morning bugs bunny cartoon you know it's it's a show that really takes its storytelling seriously um it's a show that really brings a lot of really deliberate detail to the lessons that are being put on display the interpersonal relationships between the characters um and I think the thing about it that impresses me so much is that it takes all of the fallout from the season one finale and it translates that into where the characters are emotionally and mentally. I mean, for a split second, I was kind of shocked at, at um, uh, Zuko's temper at his uncle. And, um, and part of my brain instinctively went oh wait a minute what are we falling back on type like i thought these two had really patched things up but like they were really close by the end of season one they were having some real heartfelt moments there they were really bonding mm -hmm. and then i remembered like the way that season one ended and i'm like man zuko like was this close to catching the avatar and of course it would reignite all his feelings of like self-loathing and frustration his anger would be back again and i'm like yeah, that's true. We didn't just remodel his entire personality and heal all of his very deep emotional trauma in just 20 episodes. We did not do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, so so the fact that we're seeing a lot of, just a lot of depth from them more so, um, to, to step away from, from the, uh, uh, from Zuko, though, for a moment, and to return back to the, the hero group, um, Katara. Katara's like protectiveness over the group and the relationship between her and Aang where you're seeing uh, in the episode him being pushed and him agreeing to allow himself to be pushed trying to achieve the Avatar state uh, and Katara in this real heartfelt just standing in protest over it like somebody who's abusing themselves trying to reach some absurd goal and she's just like, I'm not going to be a part of it. Uh, and, and it's so unlike the Katara that we know, but she's matured a lot in just one season. Yeah. And I, as an interesting parallel, I think it's 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 very cool to look at the, the setups of the characters and the archetypes and the personalities drawn for them. That we have Zuko, who goes through this arc, and it looks like he's turning a corner, especially in his relationship with his uncle. And while he has, he's still the same old Zuko. He's still the right. same old Zuko he's always been. He's not really different. He's grown in some ways, but he's still himself. Katara, on the other hand, has been through this amazing journey with this new family that she's found in Aang, and she's seen the world that she's never known before, and she has really become adept and powerful and a force to be reckoned with with her water bending. And we're seeing that translate into the way that she approaches these things, where she's not hot-tempered and angry with Aang and she's not, you know, frustrated or chewing him out or asking her brother to intervene and why aren't you... You know, she's not using the aggression. 
she's standing mm-hmm. out of it and allowing them to just do whatever they want those developments in the characters and the way those come across are just like monumental oh yeah i love since we're on katara um i do love that very brief scene of her talking with ang on the balcony you know about why he feels like he has to do this to postpone his training which has been the whole goal the entire time you know for the first season you know um him having to learn all the elements and all that like that was as she says, it's the long way, but it's the right way to do things. Um, and, you know, this is sort of a shortcut. And why do you feel the need to do this? Like, what suddenly changed your mind? And then Aang having, I mean, it's a good point that he makes that, like, yeah, he's already 100 years late. So many people have died in this 100-year war. And now that he's here and he has this incredible power, why not learn to use it and stop the Fire Nation? Like, it's, you see both sides. It's not a clear cut, like, oh, well, you know, Aang's clearly in the wrong and Katara's, cl-. you know, it's very, very muddy, just like war is. Um, and so I just yeah. love how mature that whole conversation is. It's wonderful. It really, it really is. And, and you know, the, the evolution then stepping onto Aang now, you know, the evolution that Aang's character sees is in the fallout of, of again the season one and again wonderful storytelling because lots of things could take things to a climax in the finale of a season and then shoot the works like a giant fireworks show and wow that was really cool guess we all go on with our lives like normal no there's an emotional fallout there's changes there's there's repercussions is the word i'm looking for and one of those repercussions for ang is that you know the insane power that he showed there in the northern water tribe in the battle against the fire nation is now a thing of legend that this guy this 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 general what's his name again the earth the earth nation general general fong general fong right thank you the general fong wants to take advantage of he's not wrong he's thinking like a military strategist and i love that moment where they differentiate that he's not bloodthirsty that mm-hmm. that he takes aim to the window and in what I think is an incredible moment, he shows him these are the soldiers who are lucky enough to come home alive every right. day that they don't use Aang's power to stop the war and crush the Fire Nation, defeat the Fire Lord, more of these people are going to die. And right. it, and it's quite a shift for Aang's character because it changes his responsibility on his hero's journey. Mm-hmm. And this is something I'm interested to see how this steers him in season two. Because in season one, he simply bore the burden that he was the Avatar. But he always just had this kind of like shrug of the shoulders, guess I'm the Avatar. And I guess that means I need to save people. Not sure how to do it. Guess I'll go out in part one of the spirit world and try to have a boxing match with a giant ghost monster. Right. <laughs> but now his perspective has shifted and changed where now it's about saving lives. It's not so much a childish guess I need to give it a go because everyone tells me the avatar need to act like one. I need to act my age. Now he has a responsibility to like actual people's lives. Now he's been in the war, the war. Not just maybe mm-hmm. bopping some Fire Nation guys who were after him trying to kidnap him. He's fought in the front lines of an actual war. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that certainly would shift one's perspective. And I think that it's, you're absolutely right. Like that, that change in him from, 
you know, oh, the happy-go-lucky, yeah, I'm the avatar, I save people, it's all good, like, you know, I'm here to help, and now it's suddenly like, oh, the weight of his role in this world has suddenly, like, come crashing down on him, because he sees the repercussions of the war, and how it's hurting innocent people, and, like, people that, you know, are just trying to live their lives, like the earthbenders, and, like, you know, he's seen bits of it, like with the imprisoned episode and the Fire Nation coming into the villages and all that. But again, it wasn't until he really like was on the front lines of the war at the North Pole that he realizes, wow, this is like so much bigger than I ever thought it was. Like it could have been. Um, so yeah, I, I do love that, that that just reality just kind of crashes down on him and he feels so guilty and he's just so guilt-ridden about everything. And I just want to give him a big hug. It's not your fault, honey. <laughs> Well, and I think it's also a, a, an interesting facet of his pacifism, which is something about him that you brought up time and time again. And so you've helped move that to the forefront of my um, my perception of Aang as I'm going through the series. And it, it's interesting because on the one hand, it puts all this guilt on him because, you know, when it's just him and Katara and Sokka, you know, bouncing around and the Fire Nation, here they come again. Oh, that darn Fire Nation trying to kidnap me. When will they ever learn? All he has to do is save the three of them and maybe somebody will get hurt or maybe somebody will get sick or something. But like everything's okay. But then for Aang to turn around and realize that his inaction, at least the way it's framed in this episode, that his inaction isn't just allowing people to get hurt, it's it's leaving people dead. Mm -hmm. Something that no matter what, he can't go back and fix. This isn't a, you can swoop in on your glider or create a tornado or throw a wind ball and you can save everybody in the last instant. These people are already dead. They're already gone. And it's retroactively your responsibility for not becoming the Avatar sooner. Right. And that's something just real quick while we're on the topic that I really commend the writers and Nickelodeon for for this show is that they are not afraid to show, well, not to necessarily show, but like they're not afraid to say dead or die or kill. I mean, they've shown skeletons yeah. <laughs> before, so like, they've shown it too. Oh, yeah. No. And it's like, it's really ballsy when you think about it, especially nowadays, because, you know, everything is censored and they really, they're not they don't have the balls to go there anymore you know yeah. um back in the day like that was really really that set it apart from you know something like say spongebob or you know fairly odd parents where those words those the words don't exist like yeah. nobody died like no people die people get hurt in this series and there's no you know oh force goes coming back like no they're dead um so you mm -hmm. know it's it's really really impactful and it really impacted me as a kid because it just kind of you know, it gave me a perspective of like, wow, this world has stakes. Like these people could get hurt or die and there's nothing that, you know, the, that they can do about it. It's just because they're in the middle of a war. Like it's yeah. crazy um, what they're able to get away with without making it graphic or disturbing. It's like, no, this is just the reality of the, of the show and the series. I think that there's, there's a, a line that a lot of, a lot of creators of media of all kinds i think they're afraid to tread on that line anymore and granted even at the time you know people stayed really far on one side of the line or the other um mm -hmm. i mean i think i told you that i used to watch a lot of um you know a lot of action 
action cartoons. I used to watch Justice League and Teen Titans. I watched the X-Men series, lots of superhero stuff. And I remember, you know, when, when came and came time for, you know, dire consequences for things, they didn't say, if we don't act now, people are going to die. They didn't say that. They said people could get hurt in a fight with people getting hurt in a war, people die. And to tackle that head on and actually put that as a consequence that makes it a game changer for the main character is, is immensely impactful and an incredible choice that they made. So like you said, you know, really ballsy, good for them to do that. So amazing. Yeah. Major prop. Yeah. So let's talk about my girl Azula because like, she's really the star of the episode. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me tell me why she's your girl why is she your girl you you have teased about the coming of this character the entrance of zuko's sister so so you tell me what it is that stokes you that she's here oh my gosh well just she's brilliantly written like and you'll learn more about her obviously as the season goes all go on but um so without giving anything away just the way that they write her is so cold and calculating she's a fucking 14 year old and she's running this shit. Like she is so in constant control and she is such like a perfectionist. And I love, you know, one of the first scenes we see of her outside of the, uh, you know, her introduction is when she's lightning bending on the deck of the ship and she's just kind of practicing. And she has that one hair that falls out of place and she just loses it. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> she's kind of insane. <laughs> um, but she's so like precise and good at what she does and you know like i said constantly in control of the situation and you know just she's the most powerful person in the room honestly and i find those kind of characters very like compelling especially if they're young like she is you know right we've she's a prodigy very very obviously yeah and we talked about it. i can't remember which episode it was but like the fascination with like young royalty you know we talked about that and, you know, Zuko obviously is young. He's 16, but she's even younger. And she's more of a prodigy than he is, than any of them are. So it's just like, wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I love her introduction, like I said, with the ship captain and the the whole tides monologue, as it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, Do the tides command this ship? It's just so good. Um, and it's like a perfect way to kind of get her character in a nutshell and just how much power she has have you have you i forget have you have you seen um have you seen pulp fiction i have not versus azula's whole do the tides command this ship gave me serious what does marcellus wallace look like uh, five <laughs> I know that scene. <laughs> you look like a bitch. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, it's absolutely the same. Like, obviously, completely different tone, but like the vibe is the same. You're like, wow, these people are about to fucking die. <laughs> like, what if she took it to the same place, though? <laughs> bottom full of lightning right there. Um, <laughs> Say what? Say what again? <laughs> Yes, I love it. Um, and again, that it's they're very similar scenes in that, you know, these supposedly unassuming people come in and they know that they have all the power. Like, you know, they may not seem like they do or may not act like they do, but they know that they do. And they don't they're not afraid to kind of toy with their prey, quote unquote, in the scene, you know, whether it's the ship captain or the guy that he's interrogating, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna 
toy with you a bit. I'm going to ask you some questions and like make you super uncomfortable, make you squirm a little bit because I know I'm in control. Like, you know, you're, you fall in line and maybe I won't kill you. Um, so, but uh, yeah, it's, it's such a great scene and I just love her design. I love that she both has the lightning bending, which I told you would, would be coming back. Um, and also that her fire is not orange or yellow like Zuko's or any other firebenders. It's blue, which is why she has the name Azula. You know, Azula is blue in Spanish for anybody that doesn't know. Um, and so it's just, it's such a cool, and it really sets her apart and makes her, like I said, more of a, you know, badass, more of a prodigy. Like, you know, she's a level above everyone else. Um, and so... I just, I love her. And the voice acting, Grey Delisle, who voices, you know, Vicky from Fairly Odd Parents and like a million other characters mm -hmm. all throughout cartoon history. Um, she's done so much work, but to me, she'll always be Azula. Like this to me is her crowning achievement of voice acting. And you'll see as we go along the dialogue they write for her. Holy shit. It's some of the best villain dialogue you'll ever find. Like the Tides monologue, fantastic. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are going to get so much, so many quotable, amazing, cold, calculating lines from Azula that you're just like, I can't believe that she just said that. <laughs> like, that is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait to see, like, what you think of her going forward because, man, she is very one bad. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very excited. And you know also that I love a well-written female character. I love oh. all the things that you can do with a character like that because, once again, like any character in the series, uh, as we said at the very start, it would be very easy to stick all these characters in archetypes, lazy common archetypes, and then just leave them there. They fit dead center there, bullseyes in you know archetypes and writing, but they've never stayed there. And that's the beauty of this show that I've really, really come to appreciate. I knew it right from the get-go, and the show has never never disappointed me on it. it they, they move around so much within and outside that archetype, and, and always in good ways. And so I'm really, really am excited to see more of her. Uh, the lightning bending was awesome, and I was really happy to see that jump back. Uh, there was another episode where uh, Uncle Iroh did a bit of lightning bending himself, and we already know that he is a master with the bending and so for him to intervene at one part later on in the episode in the fight against her and redirect the lightning that she was going to cast off into the sky he kind of used himself like a conduit where he it out yeah. one hand in one hand and out the other with her uh that's awesome but so like it leaves this question open and i don't know if the series is just going to go deeper into it so like feel free to spoil it for me but is it like, is it a form of fire bending, the lightning bending, or is this like something extremely rare that only she knows how to do? Or like, what is this? Yeah, so lightning bending is a subset of fire bending. Like, each of the elements have their own like mini subsets. Um, and lightning bending is one for fire. Um, and it's only really like, it's not that it's something only she can do, it's right. just that it's very very hard skill to learn. Um, we actually learn more about it. Uh, Iroh teaches Zuko a little bit about lightning bending. He calls it, I believe, the cold-blooded fire, um, and that only the most powerful firebenders are able to do it, and that would include the royal family. So pretty much all of them are able to do it because they're pretty much the highest level of firebenders. Um, but uh, yeah, and it is really cool that, you know, for me, I'm like, the whole fight between Zuko and Azula is great because Zuko's given it all he's got. And like I said, she is toying with him. She's not even trying. She's not even bending 
the entire time. She's just dodging him. Um, and it's not until she gets him in a very vulnerable position that she's like, all right, no more games. I'm going to shoot you full of lightning. And Iroh has to intervene because what would Zuko do without him? <laughs> you know? Um, so it's, it's really, really cool. And um, I can't wait for you to learn more about that particular subset of bending. Cause it, it is very fascinating and it does come back quite a bit throughout the series going forward. I, I want to jump back to something earlier chronologically in the episode. At the very, very start of the episode, when the good guys are being sent off, they 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 say something which is extremely suspicious to me, but like mm. it never really came into effect in the episode, unless I missed something major or fell asleep for part of it, where they have the water from the magical pool there at the north at the North Pole, and all they do they give it to they give it to Katara and they say this water from the pool has unique properties and that's it she doesn't even think to be like what properties might those be she just goes oh okay and just corks it up and off they go <laughs> I cannot I loved it. or deny whether that's going to be important later or not <laughs> <laughs> oh i'm sure it will be but i just i just laughed i i had this in my notes just giant question marks unique properties <laughs> question mark um, yeah, no. another thing i wanted to point out about the episode that i really loved and knowing your love of really vibrant color uh i i loved wherever it was that zuko and iroh were hiding in this episode whatever like land it was supposed to be in like the like the blue of the water and just these red plants everywhere like the red leaves on all the trees and the bushes and like the the bright white like steps and stone everywhere holy cow absolutely stunning i yeah. was just i my jaw was slack at the visuals and that particular like those scenes of the show i was just like that part of them walking down the stairs like thinking about you know going home and everything and i'm just like it's beautiful it's so pretty yeah i love the use of the cherry blossom trees and like the you know the beautiful pink and the blue and the white it's just like it's very visually pleasing the backgrounds for this episode um but uh yeah i Okay, so we didn't really talk about this. But this is kind of the whole point of the episode <laughs> is uh, the Avatar state. So, you know, I've been telling you. Oh, that yeah, that's not important. Come on, let's talk more about the cherry blossom trees and, and Zuko and Azula for a little bit and lightning bending. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. They, they, they want to invoke the Avatar state. So the Earth Nation throws a whole bunch of dirt at him and it invokes the Avatar state. And then they find out it's a bad idea. Anyway, so the lightning bending is really cool. <laughs> okay, we can go back. We can go over the story. Yeah, so, um, so do you kind of. I know that this is a big part of like exposition, but I think that it actually is done fairly well and quickly. Um, so do you kind of get the idea of the Avatar state now that they've kind of like laid it all out? Yeah, what I really liked about that actually, this explanation of the Avatar state, um, was that it subverts our expectations because, uh, you know, in 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 anime, in lots of anime, and, you know, there's there's... The whole kind of like is avatar anime it's not really anime it's, it's very anime-esque and it, it has a lot of themes very similar to to lots of popular anime um that he has this super mode 
this super mode he goes into in Dragon Ball Z, it's Super Saiyan. And like in a million other anime, there's like this elevated, this ascended, if you will, this ascended state that the, the hero is able to enter where, where they untap their greatest power, their inner, their inner strength. I like the subverted expectation on this where, you know, the general, like all of us in the audience, are just assuming this is a, a super powered up Aang. But I love the, that exposition by Avatar Roku and talking, showing him all the other avatars that the Avatar state is a weakened state and that it's a defense mechanism. It, it, it's, almost, it's almost more like the Hulk transformation. It's, it's mm. not just so much that he's more powerful, that he's harnessed greater strength. He's also kind of out of control. Right. And and it not only moves it in a more dynamic direction there that way, it also reveals a huge story point, which is that if he's killed in the Avatar state, he won't be able to reincarnate. <laughs> Michael will be broken. And that's, it's like an Achilles heel, you know, like he is this unbelievable force of nature when he's in the Avatar state. But it's also his greatest weakness. It's like, I love that, um, you know, that dualism of that. Well, I got to tell you, um, I think probability is on his side uh, because all the other avatars that have come before uh, have died and none of them broke the cycle. So I think the odds are pretty good that he's not going to die in the avatar state because he'd be the first. <laughs> and we have Korra, so, you know. Right, you know, so we we kind of know already that's not going to happen, but that is a very cool facet of of that. I think it just, I think that by adding that, you know, that little Achilles heel, not only does it make it different from, like you said, something like Dragon Ball Z or any other anime power up, it also makes it so that when he does go, you know, those few times that he will go into the Avatar state, it heightens the like tension because you're like, oh my god please be careful, Aang, like, do not stay in it for too long, because you will, you could get killed. Mm -hmm. um, there's like, we'll, we'll be broken, and there won't be any more avatars, and then the world will be thrown to chaos. And then Captain the series <laughs> will end, and where, what are they going to do with this podcast? Right, exactly, do it for us, Aang. <laughs> do it for us, Aang. Don't get killed in the avatar state, we will cease to exist. <laughs> this podcast will cease to exist if you're killed in the avatar state, Aang. <laughs> Yeah, the the episode was really, really good in that way, and and I gotta say, all things considered, that is why for me, while I agree with you that an eight point six is a little bit lofty, gotta tell you, I'd give this episode a pretty solid, probably eight point three. It's it's a really good, solid episode, and what I appreciate is that they did pack so much exposition into it show all the character development, all the things we've been praising it for, and they had time to adequately introduce a new villain and take us through the arc of uh, of Iroh and Zuko, meeting her, being tempted with the possibility of being redeemed, and then, of course, being betrayed and, and escaping. I mean, the whole thing is just great. I couldn't believe by the end of it that they fit all that into so short of an episode. I was like, this was this episode 45 minutes long? No, it was, it was like the usual 23 minutes, and it didn't feel rushed at all. I'm telling you now, get used to that because I've already kind of gone ahead um, with a couple other episodes past these two for the season two. And 
literally, I've seen these episodes a hundred times, but I am still shocked by how much story and how much action, how much character is packed into these 24 minute episodes. It's ridiculous. I'm like, I feel like I'm watching a movie. <laughs> like how do, how do they do this? And it doesn't feel rushed or anything. It's amazing. Um, and that season, this season in particular is why it's my favorite season. Cause they do it for pretty much every episode. It's crazy. Um, you know what? I think for once, I'm actually going to agree with you. I think an 8.3 is a very solid score. I don't hey, think for that twice it... for twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a very solid introduction episode, amazing introduction to Azula and, you know, great exposition. You know, it didn't feel too exposition dumpy with the avatar state. Um, it just kind of builds on what we had already known about it. And, you know, I loved all the action and yeah, it's just a really solid episode. So I'll go 8.3 as well. And you know what? I'm going to lead off of this episode as we transition over to the to the next one by saying, you know what? It makes me happy that you're getting like that extra added experience. Like you said, of you, these are episodes you've seen so much. What is this most recent viewing while we're doing the podcast add to it for you? Oh, for sure. I mean, it it, it just makes it more fun, honestly, because I've seen them so many times. But like, and usually it's with people that I've already watched it with, like my sisters. Um but now it's like, I love getting your perspectives. Like for instance, in the, um, I believe it was the Southern Air Temple episode, episode three, you know, I've always said that's never, that's never been one of my favorites, but you actually made me rank it higher than I probably would have otherwise, because we went so in depth into talking about it and the arc with Aang and, you know, the character development. And I'm like, yeah, it is really good. I'm like, I get a better appreciation for it by hearing it from somebody that hasn't watched it but that also has a lot of, you know, like knowledge of film and story and pacing and character and all that fun stuff. So, you know, it's great to talk to a like-minded individual, but who has no idea about, you know, the story or where it's heading. Um, so I get to watch it like vicariously live through you as if I'm watching it for the first time. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> especially because your first time viewing experience was as a young kid. And for me, oh, yeah. here I am as a 37 year old watching it for the very first time, I'm bringing a, a different perspective to it, appreciation of that first time experience. And, and I'm glad that I, some of that gets to rub off on you. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> So with that, uh, this leads into episode two of season two, uh, is The Cave of Two Lovers. Uh, it's written by Joshua Hamilton, who, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a new name for us uh, in the Avatar rank of, of writers, I, isn't it? No, I think he's done one other episode. I'm going to look him up real quick, because I know he's at least done one. Um, let's see. He did, hold, wait, no, this is his first. I thought that he had done one in season one, but I guess not. Wow. So yeah, this is the first for you. This is Joshua Hamilton. Welcome to the stage. <laughs> his, his, his avatar cherry has been popped at the first episode here. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, and maybe that's why, because he's actually done one of my favorite episodes, like top Ooh. 10. So that's why I'm like, I know that he's done more than just this one um i just thought it was in season one but uh yeah so written by joshua hamilton welcome uh and uh it's actually ironic we were just talking about uh the southern air temple the third episode of season one uh it this episode here has the uh, same director lauren mcmullen yes sir love lauren 
uh, and I'm curious because uh, Lauren also did uh, Winter Solstice, the Spirit World, and also directed the Storm and the Deserter as well. Oh, and part one of Siege of the North. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of really good episodes, and I gotta tell you, I feel like the episodes that she directs, Lauren McMullen's, have a very unique sort of focus in on Aang himself. Have you kind of noticed that 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 trend when they need a really Aang focused episode that really kind of gets into his emotions a little bit, they call in Lauren. See, I did not until just now notice that. Um... But that makes sense. I mean, you know, I think that Aang is, I think that Aang is a very difficult character to write um, or would be a very difficult character to write for a man. Um, Cause you know, he's got some feminine qualities like, you know, he's super gentle, he's a pacifist, he loves animals. Like, you know, I feel like women would be more comfortable writing him and like kind of get him more than men in the writer's room, I feel like. So maybe that's why, I don't know, just kind of speculating. I feel like that's an accurate statement, and I actually that's probably the first thing I would have come out with, is that when you have a character like Aang, he's a he's a kid, and he's a kid burdened with this massive responsibility, but he also has this really big gentle heart, like you said. And the episodes that Lauren has directed are the episodes that get into his head, that really touch his sensitive side. It's those kind of face to the wall moments at night where it's just Aang and all of his inner thoughts and feelings, whether it's his sorrow at the loss of his mentor and the mourning over everyone he's lost, or him, you know, in regret over the decisions that he's made and, and feeling the burden of responsibility back on himself, or here where he finds himself alone in the cave with Katara and how's he going to act with her? And, you know, that it's, it's, it's great. So big hats off to, to Lord McMullen. For the excellence that she brings there to developing and expanding Aang's character. You're doing Aang justice, Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, this episode is animated by Jam Animation. That the top tier animation is back. And uh, oh yeah, didn't even have to didn't even have to read it. I saw it's the first frame of this episode. I was like, yeah, we're back. We're back, boys. <laughs> Uh, and the episode aired March 24th, 2006. The IMDb rating of The Cave of Two Lovers is 8.1 out of 10. Ugh, I do not agree. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the real matchup here, the, the climactic finale fight of the series, as we can see, is Amanda versus IMDb. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And obviously we know that I'm right, but... It's oh yeah, no, absolutely. IMDB is the fire lord here, okay? Right. <laughs> All right, we've got a couple of fun facts here. Um, not a ton, but a couple. Um, our first fun fact is that the story of the two lovers from the rival families is similar to that of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And I'm sure you picked up on that very... Because, I mean, even as a kid, it was obvious to me that that's what it was supposed to be. Um, oh, yeah. That because I think that Romeo and Juliet is beautiful and it's you know one of Shakespeare's best work and you know I I'm always here for a star-crossed lover story so okay but um, can we break it for one second to appreciate on the heels of that that it's the story of Omashu oh yeah I know it's yeah I told you <laughs> mind blown yeah no I that part of the episode where you know we see this kind of almost brushstroke like story. 
um, it's in a kind of brushstroke um, animation style. It's so beautiful. And it looks like it came mm -hmm. out of like some ancient Japanese scroll or something. And like, it's being told like it's an ancient story. And it just, and the, the fact that Oma and Shu, it's the first like ship name. <laughs> yes. I just, I love it. I, it's so simple, so effective. And it like gets across dialogue or not dialogue, but exposition without it feeling forced, you know? Um, it's just, it's like within a story, kind of like, you know, Darth Plagueis or whatever. <laughs> like, I love when worlds get kind of expanded on through lore and through myth. Like it's, it's so cool. Um, I want to do get, I want to get, and I want to get more into the stories within stories things, but I have a confession to make. Right when yeah. they were like, they were names were Oma and Shu. I sat there just like, Oma, Shu, Oma. Shu. It took me way too long. <laughs> oh my God, dude. So I, I, I have to admit it. I was just sitting there and I was just entranced with the story. And then they got clever at the end. I'm like, huh? And then they showed the city, Oma, Shu. And I'm like, duh. Oh <laughs> <laughs> that was simultaneous facepalm and mind blow. <laughs> yeah, I, I I was like Sokka with the the slamming the forehead <laughs> of myself. I was like, wow, dude, so deep. Wow. <laughs> um, uh, our second fun fact is that this is the first episode in which the blind badger moles appear. Now, if you listened, uh, the badger moles in the story of Oma and Shu, um, they are the first, or they were the first earthbenders. That is how people learned earthbending. Um, and this kind of ties into the theme of the original benders, you know, for um, the waterbenders, it's the moon and the ocean. They taught the waterbenders how to push and pull the water. Um, and for, um, I believe, firebenders, yeah, firebenders, it's the dragons, you know, dragons were the first uh, firebenders. And for the airbenders, the sky bison, Appa. So, you know, I love the idea of like, humans learning from animals it is very mythological you know um how to do this magical you know telekinesis sort of thing and um, it really does fit that the dirt nation like when you really think about it i mean think about it they don't have gods or dragons or floating beautiful herd animals they got badgers <laughs> badger moles <laughs> <laughs> you got a bunch of badger moles just rolling in the dirt and they're like oh we can do that too <laughs> the hate for the Earth Kingdom. <laughs> Bite it, Dirt Kingdom. <laughs> Dire season is the Earth Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll grow to appreciate it more when we get to Toph. But um, anyway, I, I love the badger moles. I think they're so cute. They're so big. I just want to kiss their noses. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so our third fun fact is when Aang and Katara enter Oma and Shu's uh, tomb, the pictures that tell their story are referenced to e Egyptian culture with hieroglyphics. Um, also, just a fun little, you know, it kind of ties in all these different regions and myths and things like that. And I just, I love the world building that they do for Omashu in this particular episode. It's, uh, it's very good. You know, the center of the story is this story within a story, as you said. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things about that in, in world building, as you were saying, is that it's one thing to create a fantasy world, but when the people in the fantasy world who live there also know myths 
and legends and songs and poems that exist in their world. When the people in their world need escapism, they have a fantasy world and media that they intake. It adds a million times more depth to the world. You have now solidified the world building that it has its own mythology within it. And, and that is spectacular world building. Oh yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a total whore for world building and like myth. <laughs> so yeah, this, this kind of thing is right up my alley. And I think that that's why I gravitate so much to things like Game of Thrones, Avatar, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, cause they, you know, whether you like those things or not, you cannot deny that they excel at world building. You feel like this is a real lived in world, um, you know, with their own struggles and their own myths and legends. And um, so I just, I love that kind of stuff. And Star Wars, obviously, you know, <laughs> like, I can't believe I forgot that one. Um, but uh, those are kind of, to me, the gold standard for world building. If you look at those, those properties, like, you're going to be set for world building because those are what you should look to. That's what they should be teaching in script writing classes is those, those shows and movies. Cause uh, yeah, they're amazing. I mean, and for anybody who wants to take a page from their book and wondering what specifics we're talking about, I mean, even something as simple as in star Wars, in star Wars episode one, they pull out of their ear that there's the prophecy about the chosen one. Oh, there's a myth, there's an ancient legend within Star Wars that the scholars of Star Wars have mulled over. There's a sacred text that they go over, like theologians, that they pull these things from, saying, hmm, I wonder if we can interpret this as a prophecy. Like, those kinds of things add so much more depth. It shows that there are people in the world who are writing their own stories or spinning their own beliefs and holy texts or whatever form you want to put it in. Even an oral tradition of something historical that is so fantastic that it sounds like it's just a myth, a kid's story that, that, that you could tell on a, on a holiday or around a campfire and just share that. And that's the kind of thing that, that adds that much depth. So, you know, all those writers out there who are building your own fantasy world, build some myths. The old timers, what kind of things did they recall that have been lost to history? And what sort of, um, you know, fairy tales exist that you spook your kids with at night when you're around the campfire so that they go to sleep and rather don't sleep all night? <laughs> you know, that stuff is incredible. Um but, you know, one of the things about this episode that was uh, a huge change of pace, especially after the seriousness of the last one, is uh, the band of hippies. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, let me tell you. These characters are very divisive amongst fans. Um, I feel like you either love them or you hate them. I love them. I think they are hilarious. Um, what did you think? I think they're absolutely hysterical. I loved the I loved the the music that they come up with right on the spot. It, I love how it was very like hippie bluegrass and yeah. it, it, but the best thing about it was that it was just so it didn't take itself seriously we weren't supposed to be impressed with them they were like oh it's a song about the moles let's sing the mole song secret tunnel <laughs> secret tunnel <laughs> and die yes no. and die i forgot about that part that's the best oh hey i just remembered how the end of that song went and die. <laughs> and die. And that's it. There's nothing more. Oh my gosh. I heard, yeah, no, it was hysterical. 
Oh man, no. Okay, yeah, no. Sorry. Like, if you guys hate these characters, you're just wrong. the The Jedi Council of Two here has decided <laughs> that you're just that you're wrong. So, when I was in high school, um, I had an outdoor egg class, and I had a group of friends in that class, and we were all obsessed with Avatar. And there were days in our outdoor egg class that we would just kind of chill. We wouldn't really do a lot. We had their off days. And during those off days, we would literally be sitting in a circle, like singing songs from Avatar, the Secret Tunnel song and like the Two Lovers song. And <laughs> literally we would just be vibing and it was so great. And we got to the, you don't know what this is, but we got to the Leaves from the Vine song and we all start literally in the middle of class, we all start sobbing. So it was like, we were having like a, a religious experience, <laughs> literally singing <laughs> just singing Avatar songs. Like it was phenomenal. Shout out to Emma and Cole and everybody from my outdoor ed class that was part of my little Avatar group because uh, I love you all. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> In the, in the beginning of the episode, they get split up. You know, the group gets split up and you've got Aang, Katara, and Momo together. And then you've got Sokka and the hippies. And it is just the perfect, they are perfect foils for each other. <laughs> the banter and just the hilarious jokes that come at Sokka's expense from these guys is just so funny. I love the humor in this episode. Well, see that and the fact that I feel like the when they set up the characters like this in the episode, they also set it up where if you are annoyed by them for whatever reason that you just don't care for them, well then you 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 love Sokka because he is there just groaning and smacking his forehead, and I, I, one of my favorite things at the end when they get out the other side, and they're just like, "Oh, are you okay?" and they go, "Why is your head red like that?" and he just again. <laughs> He just got this red mark on his head for all the times he's slapping his forehead. It's great. I have days like that. I, I feel you, Sokka. <laughs> yeah, um, I do love that. That's probably my favorite. That That's a perfect ending joke for the entire episode. Just the nobody react to what I'm about to say. I think this kid might be the avatar. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I loved. So are you guys coming to Omasha with us? No. Okay. <laughs> Literally, you're just like, okay, bye. Um, <laughs> they, just, they just leave. That's it. They're gone. Uh, no. Oh, okay. It, it's perfect. Um, yeah. And I do. I love, I genuinely love the songs that they come up with. I get them stuck in my head all the time. Like, I'll just randomly start singing Secret Tunnel or Two Lovers Forbidden from One Another. <laughs> They're genuine bangers. Um, and this is a really surprisingly like romantic episode. I mean, hell, it's called The Cave of Two Lovers. And you've got obviously the story with Oma and Shu, but you've also got this like what's been building up, you know, Aang's interest in, you know, in Katara basically is crush that's been developing. And now we kind of see that it's kind of beginning to be reciprocated, you know, by Katara. She's the one that offers a solution to getting out of the of the cave, you know, if they kissed and that also was a hilarious bit. Um just Aang's reaction to that. He's like, uh it's kissing. Oh, he's such a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, I, I love all of that. And it's so sweet. And the way that they build up to that moment where you know the light is fading, their candles fading, and you know, they're about to be plunged into total darkness, and they're just kind of leaning in towards each other really slow and apprehensively. And then they kiss, but we don't see it. It's very tastefully done. And then, you know, the lights come on and it's this beautiful green crystals. And 
you know, it's like, wow, that was so surprisingly romantic. Like, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, the whole time I was all for it. Like, like the tension there, I, I, I was waiting for it. And then there, the light went out in that moment. And I just kind of leaned forward like, okay, here's the best thing about it, too. Since they don't show it, it left it really vague if they actually kissed. Mm-hmm. And so you can interpret it either way. And I love that they left it like that. They didn't show them kissing, but they also didn't show them not kissing. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, very well done. Very well done. Yeah. And I love, this is just a really underrated little romantic moment in the episode, but um, it's at the very beginning when, you know, I think that one of the hippies was telling them, you know, all all you have to do to get through the tunnels is to trust and love. And Aang just kind of looks over to Katara and she's not looking at him, but she, you know, the wind's blowing through her hair and she looks beautiful. And like, it's just like, and he just smiles and I'm like, Oh, Aang, he's so in love. It's so sweet. Mm-hmm. It's like that, you know, you always see in the romantic comedies or romantic movies, um, you know, when the guy or the girl, they look to the other person when they're not looking and it, it's like the most beautiful thing ever. Like, they're just like, oh, wow, I'm so in love with this person. They either don't even know it or don't realize it or whatever. Um, and I just love that little moment. It's so sweet. Like, <laughs> I love Aang and Katara so much. Um, See, people who, criticize, I- people who criticize that song, the You Don't Know You're Beautiful, that's mm-hmm. what it was. That's what the kind of thing it was actually about. It wasn't about somebody with low self-esteem who doesn't realize their worth. It's those moments where you're not trying, where you're just completely, unobl- you're just oblivious. Anybody's paying attention to you. And someone can look at you in those moments and be like, wow, you have no idea how amazing you look. That's what love does. And that song is a banger, by the way. So anybody that doesn't like it, just you're wrong. <laughs> you're also wrong. The Council of Two is just legislating everything else. What 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 else, Amanda? P- pineapple on pizza? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Yes, of course, yes. And if you don't like pineapple on pizza, you're also wrong. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I just I honestly like there's not really a ton to talk about in this episode, just because. Like, it's mostly just focusing on the characters and the relationships and, like, the humor. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is honestly top 20 episodes for me. Like, this is one of those that I could watch. If I'm ever in a bad mood, I could put this on and I will laugh. I will just be, like, smitten. I'll be like, I just love the vibe of this episode. Um, it's got music numbers in it, which I love. Um, yeah, it's really one of my favorites. Like, top 20 for sure. And I didn't even mention it, but this is another... <laughs> Real quick, this is another hilarious joke that I love. I love quick cuts like this in in like comedies where, you know, at the very, it's literally the beginning of the episode, um, Sokka's like, yeah, no, we're not going to take that secret love tunnel. We've dealt with the Fire Nation before. Like, we'll be fine. And then it cuts to them being like completely just like, you know, they're flying and the Fire Nation's firing at them. They're screaming and then they just quick cut again. And he's like, all right, love tunnel, let's go. It's like <laughs> that like... moment. It's, it's like that moment from Up where the kids like wants to see his house and just low, lower him down on a rope. And then like <laughs> they drop him and then it cuts right back to them considering doing that. And they're like, yeah, no. Yeah, no, we're not going to do it. I love quick cuts like that. Um, Like I said, the humor in this episode, phenomenal. Um, But uh, yeah, for me, this is like a 9 out of 10 on, or sorry, a 9.5 out of 10. Like this is, all my top 20s are going to be 9 out of 10s 
or more. So uh, I really love this episode. You know what I really love? I love the fact that the show's tone, episode to episode, doesn't just go a super action-packed episode or somber exposition episode. And and some people be like, oh yeah, well of course there's filler episodes that are just full of jokes. Uh, but this isn't that. It's that you have an episode that's devoted to the emotional journey of a character. And I mean, and I'll say this: I think there's a that that's something that a lot of a lot of male um, consumers of media underappreciate because, of course, all we want is explosions and sex, right? So like, so so as we're watching this though, I mean, I'm a diehard romantic. But more to it, I believe that there's a lot of value in the romance done right, because it takes the characters through an emotional journey. And I'll be controversial on this here. You know, the love story in Star Wars, where a lot of people feel like a gushy love story, like what they did in, in Episodes 2 and 3, in particular Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, that is, it's out of place. But here's the thing about it, though. They didn't focus on the romance itself. It wasn't really big and gushy and kissy, and it wasn't sexual. It wasn't anything like that in Attack of the Clones. But it moved the characters developmentally using emotional things. You didn't need mysteries. You didn't need danger. and You didn't need threats to move them through the story. You put something in, in front of them and motivations for a character that... that they move forward all on their own. They're self, the characters become self-motivated to pursue something as ephemeral as love. Because just like with all the uncertainty you see between Aang and Katara in this episode, you know, it's it's so powerful a thing in a story that you just literally mention the word love, like you just said, and Aang stops and looks over at Katara, and you've created a moment out of nothing but a look and a word. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the greatest love stories. Don't they all just start with a look at a word? Exactly. <laughs> so I also really love this episode. I think it was phenomenally done. Very funny. Super watchable. Um, I almost watched it again tonight before we did this podcast, but I didn't. I was short on time, but I really want to watch it again. And you know what? I'm probably going to watch it after we're done. <laughs> uh, I am going to give it a solid 9.2 out of 10. Nice. Uh, I said it before that these two episodes, they take the series in an a direction in season two, just for these two episodes, that, like I said, they're really, really departing in a different direction. The tone is completely different. The There's a lot of more emotionally developed and mature themes that's being put out for the audience. They know that we know these characters, and so they're not afraid to play them a little bit out of what we're used to to start moving them in different direction than what we assumed you know ang is not always going to be the happy-go-lucky kid who just feels bad about running away you know zuko is still zuko but he's not oh yeah he got softened up in 20 episodes no he's back to being old zuko he's got a he's got different things to tackle he's a multifaceted character he's not just a straight line from one place to another it's great it's really great. Yep. And, and as always, I can't wait to see more. That's all for today. To all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So feel free to leave a review or comment, follow the podcast, give us a good rating and all that good stuff. You can find us on Twitter at Millwood and Micah. And please follow our Instagram at Millwood and Micah podcast. Thanks again. And we'll be back in the next episode.